Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. One of the strange wonders of my life is that the core of my after-degree theological training uh, really came to me through the medium of publicly funded radio programming, almost all of it curated by our next guest, David Cayley. For more than 30 years, David Cayley was a producer for a public radio program entitled simply Ideas at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I would never have known about the priest and philosopher Ivan Illich, known for his critique of institutionalism, were it not for David Cayley, and very few people in the world would have known about the profoundly Christian underpinnings of Illich's social and economic criticism had David not coaxed an audio-recorded Last Testament from Illich as a dying man. Many Canadians would not have heard of René Girard's subtle and also profoundly Christian anthropology of the scapegoat, were it not for David's work. The work of these two has been life-changing for me. If you're interested in how Ivan Illich and René Girard have influenced Marcus, you can look for his book, Life at the End of Us Versus Them, which I'm reading and enjoying immensely right now. In addition to Girard and Illich, David has introduced a number of Christian thinkers, including Simone Weil, and what's more, he has shown how one could discuss the contributions of these Christian thinkers reasonably and open-handedly in the public forum, something for which there are very few models today. Always clear, always careful, always genuinely seeking after the good, David Cayley has deepened and enriched the public conversation in this country and well beyond it. What is worth understanding is worth being understood well by everyone, said Northrop Fry, one of Cayley's many interviewees. Cayley made a career of making accessible ideas with philosophical heft and perhaps even more challenging in the present milieu, ideas of great spiritual significance to anyone who happened to tune in to CBC Radio weekday evenings at 9 o'clock. We are immensely pleased to be welcoming David Cayley to The Ferment. Well, thank you. Are you sure are you sure you should have had me listen to that? Well, has <laughs> your, your head swollen? I mean, it's all true. And uh, it's, it's just so great to hear your voice. My goodness, no. I'm, my, no. my heart is just thumping away here. I... I I, I never knew when I might hear you on the radio, and and uh, and for years it would always be that feeling of uh, you know hearing David Cayley's voice meant, oh, this is going to be good. Um, so uh, I'm I'm just flooded with endorphins right now. All right, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let me say that first. <laughs> you're very welcome. I I want to maybe begin, David, by tracing the the arc of your career a bit. Your career at Ideas, it begins with this, the program uh, you entitled Between Two Ages, which was an exploration that tried to mine the counterculture of the 60s for its best hopes and ideas and to bring those ideals into to bear on, on what was a more cynical and more violent world coming to the fore in the 80s, uh, a shift, I think, that that could be epitomized pardon me, with the assassination of John Lennon. Yes. And so the program begins with Lenin's lyric, 
Imagine There's No Heaven, It's Easy If You Try, which for me was a lyric that I found pretty distressing as a Christian teen in those years. And so in, in Between Two Ages, the folks you're interviewing, it's like you're you're looking mostly east uh, in terms of philosophy and also into uh, kind of the deep ecology movement and the, and the New Age movement. And one gets a sense that, that it's a movement kind of out of and away from that which is Western and that which is Christian. And then by the close of your career at Ideas, you've you really had become the journalist who had had taken on the Christian thinkers beat at the CBC, uh, and w- one of the one of the last programs you uh, you put together was one called After Atheism, and I, I don't want to overstate the the contrast because uh, there's a there is an integrity and a uh, th- there are themes that are recognizable throughout, but that really is quite an arc from imagine there's no heaven to to After Atheism, uh, and so. The listener wonders about pivotal moments in the life of the journalist who is sending back these reports of his exploration, uh, but always keeping the microphone pointed uh, at the ideas and stories of others. Uh, So I just wondered if you could tell the story a bit of how David Cayley became, over time, the person who could confidently and graciously host a public conversation about Christianity and Culture at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. All right, I'll try. I mean, I think the story begins with my discovery of CBC Radio. I I had no clear academic trajectory. I had a lot of questions uh, coming out of the 60s, as one says. And so it was already a discovery in 1971 that I could kind of make make a living while exploring the questions that I had. Mm. Um, your reference to Between Two Ages, which comes 10 years later, is really... I, I mean, I would have to say my first identifications were with, broadly speaking, the new left. Yeah. Yep. And I can remember a conversation. Uh, I was the host of a show in Vancouver called Good Morning Radio in the later, in the mid-70s. So we're around 1976. And I remember one morning saying to my colleague Stan Persky, who's a writer, um, Stan, I don't think I'm really a Marxist. And, and Stan said, of course you're a Marxist. We're all Marxists. <laughs> and it had been kind of an assumption. Right. <laughs> uh, I would say. And so, but there was a, just a, a soup of influences playing, right? So mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wouldn't have been surprising to find on my table at the same time the Marxist economic and philosophical manuscripts beside the Tibetan Book of the Dead or the I Ching or whatever it was. Um, and I didn't really have to sort that out until uh, the later 70s. Um, I was fired by the CBC in, in at the end of 1976, after a, a two-spirited defense of uh, Leonard Peltier, the, the Sioux Indian a man who was extradited from Vancouver um, and has been in prison ever since for murders he didn't commit. Um, uh, but it was a; it had been years of of a kind of a, of the student revolutionaries taking control of the radio station in Vancouver, and they finally got us out. 
They, and they it was oh, was just just to clarify, he the the defense was sort of two-minded or do you mean that he, that the person you were defending was a as as we now use the term a two-spirited person? No, Leonard Peltier was a was a was an activist um from the Rosebud Reserve in, in North South Dakota. And he was apprehended in Canada and extradited and tried for the murder of two FBI agents and sent to prison for life. He's still there. No president has yet pardoned him. Okay. It was shown afterwards that he didn't commit those murders. But the point is, for me, it was a reenactment of the whole story in front of me at a moment when I could speak. Yes. And I spoke a little bit uh, <laughs> too too much in the view of my superior. So that was the, the that was the coup de grace, so to say, and I was fired. So that gave me an opportunity to really. Uh, I didn't know what university I would go to or what course I would pursue, so I just pursued my own studies and actually read Marx um, and quickly came to the conclusion that that I really um, didn't belong to the left or the right, that the the whole map uh, was wrong, that it didn't didn't fit me. Uh, I had been... uh, I'd been a contributing editor of a magazine called This Magazine, which goes way back to a predecessor called This Magazine is about schools that started in the free school movement in the 60s. And a couple of friends of mine wrote an editorial there in which they said, okay, so the big revolution didn't happen, but there's all these little fires. And if we just keep stoking the little fire, soon all the little fires will grow together into a big fire and we'll have the revolution we've been dreaming of. And it was sort of at that moment that I realized what I had probably partly known all along, which I didn't believe any of that. Huh. So but between two ages was just a way of speaking of of some kind of condition, right? Not knowing what was coming, knowing what was dying. Hmm. Uh, and it probably all kinds of influences played into that program. I don't. I, I would certainly not claim they were they were coherent. But what was remarkable was that um, people cooperated with me in an extraordinary way. It didn't seem like I could reach out to anyone who wouldn't say yes. Hmm. So I was able to bring together all these different voices and people. And I, I think if you if you listen to those programs, you you won't. They're they're not coherent, right? Stephen Gaskin, who founded a community in Tennessee called the Farm, is not necessarily on the same page as Ira Progoff, who you know spoke to me out of the Jungian tradition. Uh, the the feminism probably is another element in it, right? Yeah, the anti-nuclear, yeah. The anti-nuclear movement. So all these things are playing there, right? But I'm trying to begin to understand them in a, in a new context. So I don't know if you can say there's a predominantly Eastern influence there, but there's certainly uh, the the reaching for a a new setting uh, in which. It, it, you know, and there's over time. Then there's probably a return 
home to my own tradition, which I've never really stopped thinking about or forsaken. But it took a long time. Yeah. It's interesting for, to hear you talk about it in terms of naming a condition rather than trying to make some sort of coherent statement. I think that's that's part of why maybe there was an openness to you and why it spoke to people, because I think many well, of us are, are aware of, a, of something that's very complex and that's that's anyone naming, sort of trying to make a statement about too quickly, it just sounds false. Well, and I was given this gift to make radio programs, right, which was just my good luck. And it was an astonishment to me, you know, pretty early on that, that academic, you know, I had this kind of reverence for the university, right? And I was just a journalist. Right. And people would say, well, you're, you're so lucky, right? And it took me a while to take that in that they felt, you know, I had the privilege. Yeah. That I could make these explorations outside of uh, the political context of a university and somehow um, get to do it. How do you think so that, I, I was always making radio programs, and in that sense, I didn't feel I had to. It wasn't my philosophy that I right. was putting forward, yeah. and I wasn't. It it was a chance, and and I I would have I guess it you you would say it was a principle that what I was presenting wasn't finished. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was it was the opposite of finished. It was. It was kind of open to participation, and I, I think I, I, I gradually that view gradually took shape that that um, that it was an invitation, yeah, to a further want, conversation about these ideas rather than a, a finished body of ideas. I want to segue to your friendship with Ivan Illich, and I and I wonder if there's a link there between that way of having a conversation which is, as you say, not finished and and remains open to the other, uh, that allowed you to develop a relationship with with someone like Illich that that became a more natural friendship than than might have been possible had you been uh university colleagues, say. Well that might be true. That might be true. I, I it's um I mean, I had known him. He came to Toronto to help us out with a teach-in we were doing in 1970, and I—he uh, had been a guide for me all along. I'm, you know, I have said that this wasn't a coherent philosophy, but he was always part of it uh, through the 70s and into the 80s. So when we met in 1987 in Toronto, when he came. He had just finished a book called ABC, The Alphabetization of the Popular Mind. Um, and studies in literacy, the history of literacy, were for him a way of trying to get to grips with the present moment, right? And the obviously the, the watershed he saw the world crossing that he really hadn't anticipated into a kind of computerized world image, you would say. He hadn't anticipated that when he wrote his books of the 70s. So that's where he was. And I, finally getting a chance to meet him, I was covering this conference he was at, you know, really wanted to get to know his thinking better and 
He said it was completely out of the question. He just said he was finished with that, wasn't doing that anymore. And it was a kind of moment standing outside Emmanuel College at the University of Toronto when uh, my wife Yuda and our three young children came and something happened to him that made him change his mind in how he saw us. Uh, and he was like that. He was the man who would respond in the moment. And so he said, come to State College, Pennsylvania the following year and and see what happens. And he basically, you know, gave himself, he called it obedience, um, huh. to my questioning. And once it began, it didn't really end. And it, it, it changed both of our lives because he had written in a very compact, disciplined style, but he hadn't always been well understood. So many of his friends spoke to him about the new understanding they gained from reading Ivan Illich in conversation or listening to the radio programs, because the radio programs that we made then became a book called Ivan Illich in Conversation. And the the way he spoke off the cuff um, made him accessible to people in a new way. So uh, that was a little, uh, already a big change for him. And then later, as we got to know each other and really did become friends, then I was able to understand that he was never going to write the book that I most wanted to read, which was the book that was published in 2005 as The Rivers North of the Future, which was his in a, in a phrase, his sense that the, the history of the West is best understood um, as the institutionalization of Christianity. So is modernity is the gospel upside down, in a, in a sentence, was his view. And, and I needed to try and understand that, right? Now, if you try and put that together with the New Age, right, going back to between two ages, you can uh -huh. do it because he's really, I mean, if you really understand his tragic view of Christianity, then it does, it does provide starting points for an, a new understanding, which I think you're trying to pursue in your book, actually. Uh-huh, Yeah. Since you are so good at helping folks understand Illich, I, I wonder if, for just for some of our listeners for whom he'll be just kind of completely new, I wonder if you could just, in a nutshell, tell us what's Illich's issue with development and how is it that he sees the, the link between that, that problem with development as a corruption of Christianity? Well... Let's let's start a little. If you start a little bit earlier, um, Illich was a priest um, who fled the politics of Rome, the Roman Church, and, and went to New York in 1951. And um, as splendidly educated as he was, and and certainly had been tapped for a 
a high church career. He he wanted to get out of there and ended up as an assistant parish parish priest uh, in New York City. And dealing in the first place with the flood of Puerto Ricans into New York and the the fact that they could find really no home in the American Catholic Church. So mm-hmm. he the first problem he took up in a way was the problem of mission. He he understood that all Christians must, if they really are Christians, wish to share the good news that they know. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be Christians. Yeah. So uh, that that's an axiom, which I think is never lost. So he never renounces mission in that sense. Yeah. But his understanding of mission comes to be a, an understanding of the silence in which one must stand before another culture or another people or even another new person, mm. uh, an understanding of poverty, uh, an understanding of all the difficulties that face the word of God in a new setting. Mm. And and it was in a way opposite to the way his church in the main understood the matter. I mean, it... It came to a head when um, a Marinol priest called John Considine convinced several popes that uh, that the that Latin America should be flooded with American priests and religious. I mean, fully ten percent of the personnel of the American Church should be sent to Latin America because Latin America was seen as chronically short of priests, right? Hmm. And this was done in concert with the Alliance for Progress, which was a program of the Kennedy administration beginning in 1960 that that really, um, I mean, I think it's not, it's, it's foreshortening, but it's not too much to say that it, it was connected to what happened in Latin America, to the vicious coup that took place in Brazil in 1964, for example. So, so Illich, so this was a the American Church, full of itself, full of its. You know, we go to Latin America, we build schools, we build churches, we we remodel the Latin Church in the image of the American Church, and he stood against that. Now, development is 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 directly connected to that, right? Sure. Yeah. Development is, well. development is also a crusade. It's a mission. It's a universal program. Um, it's it's completely novel in 1948 when Harry Truman, um, in his famous uh, speech of that year, refers to underdeveloped areas, right? So the whole world can be characterized in in one figure. Development, yeah. underdevelopment. I mean, it's insane, right? It completely rules which, out which, the, var- which mirrors, the varieties. Which, of... And it, it mirrors, yeah, underdeveloped, developed mirrors exactly saved, not saved in the traditional missional kind of way of thinking. I think that's, I think that's correct. And then he, out of that grows the understanding of the institutions that are part of development, right? So the school, which he sees after uh, not that long, 
working in Puerto Rico. And he, he went after from this situation in New York, he became vice rector of the Catholic University in Ponce in Puerto Rico. So he was on the school board that, that governed all educational institutions on the island. And he tried to understand this, this beginning as a supporter and then seeing that this was another kind of church and that it was going to produce more failures and successes, right? That it was not a practical form of education. So the de-schooling analysis grows out of that and so on. Mm-hmm. But it all start it all starts with mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a helpful uh, connection to draw. Jump in here, Alana, wherever you want to go. So uh, maybe I'll start uh, with moving on to William Blake. Actually, oh, yeah. so nice. So a few years ago, I remember driving home from the recording studio in the evenings and catching your William Blake series, and I was so taken in by it. I I was in my own uh, form of uh, transformation at the time, sort of getting a new operating system when it came to how I perceive God and and uh, this whole story. And I remember particularly when Northrop Fry was speaking about Blake's um, book of Urizen. Yes. Is that how you say it? Yes. And uh, with Urizen being God as a caricature of human reason. Yes. And that struck me so deeply. I was, uh, I'd, I'd been working with Meister Eckhart's line at that time, God rid me of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm still working with it. Uh, I was working with it a lot. Um, and I see it as this, uh, I see Meister Eckhart's line, God rid me of God, um, as God rid me of this caricature of human reason. <laughs> yes. Um, and I found your podcast uh, uh, on Blake last night. Uh, this It's the same series. Mm-hmm. And I listened for that section so I could quote it properly. Uh, yeah. He, Urizen, is humanity's creative power, alienated and imprisoned within an abstract divinity. And inevitably, says Blake, he is a tyrannical god, an allegory of kings and priests, his heavens writ with curses from pole to pole. <laughs> and against this god, Blake pits what he calls the divine humanity, and he takes his stand, according to Northrop Fry, on the Bible, the book which Fry follows Blake in calling the great book of art. So from my perspective as what some might call a recovering evangelical. (laughs) This is pretty scintillating stuff. Taking a stand (laughs) against the punitive God with the very book that is used so often to impose uh, this this abstract divinity created by human power. So so that draws me in uh, because I'm so interested in, in having a fresh perspective but what drew you in? Wow. Um, well, I had read Blake as a as a young man and liked liked him very much. But I would say that it was uh, it was Northrop Fry and Kathleen Rain, especially the British poet, who mm-hmm. who uh, who who showed me all of Blake. And then got me reading the prophetic books myself, 
Um, so they were uh, far beyond, you know, the much the biggest influences on my understanding in, and in seeing how, how fully worked out and how complete Blake is. I mean, you know, but that was Fry's accomplishment really in, in relation just, not just to me, but the world, right? Fearful symmetry, with the exception of some of the earlier work of, of Damon Foster was, was really, um, Foster Damon, pardon me, I'm mixing the words, mixing the, the name around. Um, you know, that was what what he did, really, in Fearful Symmetry. So, And uh, so, so Northrop Fry, uh, he, he goes on to say, if you insist on separating God from man, you have merely God who is a scarecrow. And he's interpreting this, this Blake book on Eurizen. Um, uh, God, God who is scarecrow in the sky and merely man who is a psychotic ape. So that's if you separate the two. And then you, Kathleen Rain, your other influence, says uh, the true humanity is the imprint of Christ. And um, Blake, I've been doing a project. Uh, my latest album that's going to be coming out is uh, the story of Thomas Merton. And William Blake was a huge influence in in uh, Merton's conversion. Yeah. And he said... Well, he said once, um, every golden instant, this is Merton, every golden instant mints the Christ who makes us free. Um, so what, uh, you're, you've done such a great job at uh, being the programmer, but I'm wondering uh, what draws you in to, to cover these types of things and, and what does Christ mean to you? Oh, dear. <laughs> drawing you right out they didn't ask That's you questions a, like this at the cbc did they David? no they didn't ask me questions like this at the cbc well aren't, aren't those two different questions what draws me into blake and and what does christ mean to me um well you can answer either one okay good um let me let me go back to what you said about God and man, right? Yeah. God, God and humanity. I think the understanding that those two are a couplet mm. are is is very is true and very very tricky at the same time. I mean, because it can easily be then just a projection, right? Right. Um, and to to understand that humanity becomes humanity in a dialogue mm. uh, with mm. an unseen, unknown interlocutor is 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 pretty fundamental for me. I think now, um, and. Mm. As to the the understanding of the Christ, um, I I think that's that's a thing that's you know that that changes for me because I mean you, you're talking about yourself as a recovering evangelical. Um, I'm a, a I would say a deep a deep Anglican. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Form, mm -hmm. formed formed in the Anglican 
church. A number of my forebears were uh, priests, ministers, and even, uh, God help me, professors of theology here in, <laughs> here in Toronto. Um, and uh, so my sensibility was completely formed in the church, my religious sensibility at least, hmm. and formed in such a way that I will never unform it. It's, if you know what I mean hmm. by that. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. one, one wakes up as something, right? And mm -hmm. um, so even though and Marcus alluded earlier to explorations in in Eastern religions, and there there certainly have been some, um, you know, the you that's as as Fry once said to me, that's the you know the rock we have to stick to the rock from which we were hewn, and we we have to stick to it because we can't help sticking to it, right? That we because mm -hmm. we were hewn from it, and so I think it's it's my understanding trying to evolve or me trying to evolve from from that from that ground, right? Hmm. And the, your, the other part of your question, what does Christ mean to me? I, I think it's it's beyond me to answer it right now. Um, because there are so many different levels to that question. All right, half time. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case. Pass around the virtual collection plate. If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it, but we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation, or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. So there's this phenomenon happening right now, especially in America, where two different camps, we'll call them the moral camp and the justice camp. This has been happening for a long time. It's just sort of, I would, I would say, fine-tuned in the last... Uh, say, 13 months or so or leading up to last year's election as well. Um, they're each claiming, and this is leading back to this this Eurism, but they're each claiming Dietrich Bonhoeffer as their guy. Uh, the moral camp minute, is claiming... you got to tell me more here. The moral camp and the justice camp? Yes. In the Christian... In the Christian community, shall okay. we say, if we can even call it a community... Um, so the moral camp is claiming this era is their Bonhoeffer moment uh, because they see the left-wing agenda to legalize gay marriage, for instance, as a call for Christian resistance. And then the camp, uh, they see it as their time to take a stand on the inerrant word of God and not allow a left-wing agenda to seep in and control government and people and so on. So they're seeing, they're, they're suspicious. It feels very apocalyptic 
from yeah. their perspective. And then, um, then there's this justice camp, the progressive Christian uh, movement, equally owning Bonhoeffer and seeing their cause as a Bonhoeffer moment. Yeah. And the time to call something out as unchristian and as unjust. And these camps are using the same book, the, the Bible, to back this up. So with Blake uh, being able to see that human power can create a, a punitive God, and also being able to see that biblical text can take a stand against such a creation, um, it seems that he was at this point of impasse back in the 18th, 19th centuries. Yes. Uh, so the wisdom teacher, Episcopal priest, Cynthia Bergeau, a friend of mine, she says that we can hear texts at different levels of consciousness. So I guess that I, I can see the impasse, I can see the echo chambers very clearly. Um, but do you think... That we just, we need more poetry like Blake's in this time. Is poetry one of the ways that we can sing sort of a, a new arising or a new song into the mix of this? Because it feels like such an impossible division. Well, yeah, probably all divisions are impossible. I mean, in the, that sense, right? The, the splitting of the truth in half, right? and then go mm. to war. Mm. Um, yeah. So that was sort of, I think, what I was trying to say about my waking up a little bit in the later 1970s and, and seeing that I really, this left-right thing didn't work for me, right? Because it was just basically split the truth and then fight. Um, so I think the culture war of in various forms has gone on ever since, right? Mm whether I mean you know there are presumably culture wars were named in the late 19th century and at least go back to the French Revolution and probably if one wanted one could construct a history of the world based on it but but it's it's certainly yeah there's all kinds of of these divisions and then everybody gets a big hate on for Donald Trump or whatever right and and yeah it's always to me it's it's ever thus so so Blake stands uh, for me for imagination right hmm. as a unify as a unifying power and and so in in that sense I guess I'm with you on the saving uh, possibilities of poetry yes Imagination as a saving power. Just say a little bit more about that. <laughs> well, I think it it it. Um, my, my latest uh, uh, great enthusiasm as a reader is is Eric Vogelin, who was a philosopher who died not that long ago, and he he basically says that the the great tragedy of the western tradition he goes very he dovetails very beautifully with illich is the falling apart of philosophy and and theology mm. so theology takes a propositional form right? what what is really what what are ever changing explorations 
into spirit, let's say, uh, are frozen mm. as as mandatory and propositional ideas. Yeah, we we believe this, or we, you know, we recite the creed. We may not know what it means, but that's what we believe. And um, and so yeah, you you right away and and imagination. I think names. How could, how to say it? It, it? it it keeps the element of the even though by what Blake means by imagination, he even says Christ the imagination, right? As if they were synonyms. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about the whole world of expanded consciousness, but it still keeps the element of the imaginary in it, right? That we don't that we don't know finally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not knowing is, I'm not, I should just talk about me. Not knowing is very important to me. Mm-hmm. That, that, we, that we don't finally know is, is to me, is our condition. Um, so, so the imagination, by the imagination we understand, we form images. Um, but we don't finally know. We'll know when we die. I don't know if you're familiar with James Finley, but I work with him quite a bit. He's a a contemplative teacher and and a depth psychologist, but he says that not knowing is the rich, fertile edge uh, upon which everything new is able to arise. Well, that's kind of what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing yeah. from you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not. I don't want to put forward not knowing as some kind of doctrinal view, right? Maybe there are things that I that, know. That would freeze it again, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, it's that we don't finally know, right? Now we mm-hmm. see through a glass darkly. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I wonder how, we, if, how the three of us could have a conversation. I think we're all resonating with that sense of, of keeping the door open being key to the spiritual way and yet i also in this in this moment we're living through right now i often think of yeats's line uh when he talks of, says the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity yes and what he, what he's naming there is that there are you know there are moments that seem to call for action when uh when when the ones who uh what i think coburn has this a line in a song about you know the the ones the ones who say they know don't know too well and i'm forgetting the line now but anyway there's there's this there's a sense of uh the ones who are taking action full of certainty and gusto uh are are horrifying those of us who who uh want to be loyal to a more open a more expansive uh way of of understanding our universe how how do but then we end up sort of being stuck on the sidelines while uh the the play of history is is acted out by these brigands having their their public fight with each other is uh, like is the is the sidelines just where we 
Like, is is that the Christ posture to to seem to fail, to seem to fail to act in the moment of crisis, or is is there a way we can still pull from the tradition that we're wanting to name here uh, something that does help, you know, the protester in the in the street raise, you know, walk straight and and with some courage. Uh, in a moment where where such courage is necessary? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm an old man, Marcus. <laughs> and that that's, I think, relevant, right? Yeah. If you're near the end, you mm. look at things differently uh, than if you're mm. at the beginning, and that's just the way it is for people, and it's, it's glorious. Um, so I don't... I'm not so confident I know where the sidelines are anymore or what the field is. <laughs> but but I I would say that what was important to me since I you know, what I really did was this writing and broadcasting, um, at least in my public life, was that there really is something to understand. Mm. It's not that we uh, we've got there, but we're standing on the sidelines. Um, we haven't got there, right? It's not. It's it's amazing to me how. But there um, is a real something that, that is the, worth exploring. The, yeah, I mean the this. I I didn't. I didn't think this culture war, as I call it, would go on this long and get this and and just keep getting worse. Yeah, uh, that wasn't <laughs> what I thought was going to happen in 1971 or 1968 mm. or whenever. I mean, it's it's an astonishment that that ignorant armies clashing by night just goes on and on, right? But I can't I can't jump in on a side that just seems to me half of of what one needs to know, right? Um, and so I think you just have to keep trying to recast the conversation, recast the categories, rethink, um, as, as best you can. So I, I have a I question. see your, One I mean, question. I see your book just to take an example as a, as an active intervention, huh? right? Not not a not a, a pathetic cry from the sidelines. Huh. One of one of the themes in your work is this "small is beautiful" theme. Yes. Uh, to to quote from Schumacher. Yeah. Um, and uh, I wonder, Alana, if you'd be willing. Do you have your Do you have your guitar handy? Yeah, I can just I can just hop up and get it. It's just she, hanging so, over here. So so she has a song. Uh, yeah, it's it's a song about little flower. Is that what it's called? It's it's uh, it's it's something that was important to uh, to Merton uh, in his uh, conversion, and and which I think also was, I mean, to talk about someone who who did something that looked in some ways small uh, and and literally silent. Um, that was that was I think not a pathetic cry from the sidelines but in fact an active intervention in the world as a as a contemplative hermit um 
Yeah, I just wonder Although if, he did if... he did call it conjectures of a guilty bystander. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true enough. <laughs> he named well, it. Well, and we're I mean that's true too, right? Yeah. We're all guilty bystanders. Yeah. Um So what's going to happen was, here? Yeah. Are we going to hear this song? Yeah, I'm just going to hear. So that so there's a point in uh, Merton's story where he is doesn't know if he's going to get drafted into the war, and if he does, he's trying to figure out some poetic, subversive way to be in the war, but not of it. <laughs> and um, he may end up uh, as well getting accepted to go to into Gethsemane and take his vows, and he's on his knees hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Gethsemane and he's praying to little flower Therese of Lisieux and Therese of Lisieux the reason why we picked this little chant uh is the connected to your small is beautiful is that uh she spoke about doing little things uh with great love and how the little things done with great love could touch the world in ways that we don't understand. Right. So he's so Thomas Merton is is uh, kneeling and and praying and and after he prays to her, he hears the bells of Gethsemane um, ringing, even though he's hundreds of miles away. And um, he held a devotion to her because he thought this this small little way was uh, germane for a monk who otherwise might be seen as just uh, someone who retreats uh, from the suffering of the world. So, mm-hmm. I will be your monk, little flower. Show me what to do, little flower. Pray for me, little flower. That's just the little chant from uh, that's my... That's nice. Beautiful. <laughs> I hope it's in higher fidelity than I got it over the phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we I, have our, each got, have our own microphones. You'll yeah, have to got, tune back in for the, uh, the high fidelity. <laughs> for the finished. Yeah. Anyway, it's beautiful. Thank you, Alana. So I think I'm going to want to wrap things up here also. Um, okay. For, for now. I, I have... Many more questions I'd love to ask. I, w- I was thinking, you know, I could just, like, I could create a whole, if you would, you know, if you'd let me get away with it, David, I could create a whole separate podcast where I would just, like, we, you know, we would we would <laughs> listen to uh, a David Cayley uh, series uh, on your website, and then I'd call you up, and, 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 and it would just be the David Cayley debrief, but... Um, <laughs> anyway, I, if, if you allow us, we will certainly call you again in future. Um, sure. But for, n- <laughs> for now... I think I maybe want to close with a, a question about uh, articulating hope, which we've been pushing towards already. Uh, you you 
you mentioned the fact that you are an elder and and uh, and that you see things in a particular from a particular vantage point as an elder uh as an elder do you have grandchildren david i i have a number of grandchildren yeah yeah so i i'm curious how how you talk uh about hope to to your grandchildren in in language that is simple uh because you're 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 very good at at using language that is subtle and beautiful that speaks to me of hope but i'm for for example the title of of illich's uh, opus that you produced together the the rivers north of the future you yeah. know, that's that's an image of of hope uh that you chose quite deliberately as a uh, a way of naming a kind of hope that pulls us into a fullness of time, which is a a mystery, and and away from this uh, this future that, as Illich says, has become a man-eating idol. And so, as as you speak with your grandchildren, who are probably more likely to come face to face with the future as as a man-eating idol than than we are, how, how do you how do you talk to them about hope i'm not sure i do i i think Mm -hmm. i think maybe you embody i think in the end children have to come to you right Mm. they 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 have their understanding of who you are and if you're lucky they'll ask you a question Mm. so i don't i don't probably say that much to them uh on that subject but if 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 I could go back to your earlier smallest beautiful thing, I, I think I think probably the, <laughs> the the political philosophy I've arrived at it would would best be called one step at a time, right? Hmm. So it's really about being in the present hmm. and taking the next step. Mm. And then seeing what unfolds at that mm. moment, right? It's absolutely the opposite of 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 planning or master vision or whatever, uh. right? You don't. So ab- abundance is is only revealed in the moment, right? If you look in the long term, you see scarcity. Mm. You, you see trouble. Mm. Um, you see a world that can't possibly last, right? mm. but in the moment, uh, all sorts of possibilities open up, right? And huh. and and if enough people, I mean, I, I had a friend who used to say, "If everybody in the world got a good night's sleep on the same night, there's no telling what would happen." But <laughs> but I, I would think if if more people open to that then you know things will grow from there so my hope is very much in in the in the moment in the present that's lovely so very so marcus i speaking of the moment i actually do have to to yeah. uh, head off here to to be with my boys yeah, because they're always the in blessing? the moment right now. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do the blessing. It's been wonderful chatting with you, David. Well, it's my pleasure.
So just as a by just why of a little preamble, um, we've fallen into a little charism, I suppose, of blessing our guests at the end of the interview. So if if you would let us, we have a we have a blessing we'd like to read out for you, David. I've never never refused a blessing. All right, <laughs> David Cayley, you have been excellent to listen to because you have been an excellent listener. Every good scribe brings out his of his storehouse something old and something new, Jesus said. May the long-held wisdom you have gathered hold longer because of you. May the new surprises you have marked spring fresh to others because of you. May our storehouse of reflections be blessed and passed along. May those who need it find it. May those who love it safe keep it. And may those who have known you as a public voice or as a private friend be opened up through you to the one who stands at the door and knocks. May God bless you, David Cayley. Ah. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, I like that. The one who stands at the door and knocks. Well, so. I, I lifted it. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. It's all we do. That's that's all we do. That's all we do. <laughs> um, so true. I I have some company that has come to my door and knock. So uh, I think I'll I'll have to wrap this up uh, now too. Yeah, yeah. Let's, and, let's, um, it was good. That was good. Yeah. And someday I'll and come to your door and knock. That would be that would be very lovely. I will be your monk, little flower. Show me what to do, little flower. Pray for me, little flower.
We are the ferment. You are too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, breathe consciously and with love. Eat consciously and with love. Tend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. Peace and all good.